consider this morning Matthew chapter 27, uh, verses 51 through 61. Matthew chapter 27, verses 51 to 61. And in your pew Bibles, that's page 835. Um, so we are making progress. 835. And I know maybe some of you are getting nervous how long it's going to take for us to finish the Gospel of Matthew. Um, I think, I think, perhaps, perhaps three or four more weeks. So there you have it. Um, you have more or less a time, a time frame. Uh, but let me just remind you of what we have been seeing so far. Um, Jesus Christ has been crucified. And we are going to see this morning what happens after he finally gives away to his soul and surrenders it to the Father. And how this movement that we are seeing in the Gospel of Matthew will show us what truly is happening behind and how this opens the path for every one of us to be here into his presence. And we are going to understand how that is a game-changing thing, so to speak. Anyhow, if you can, please stand to hear uh, the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant word. Verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city, and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite to the tomb. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Now, congregation of the Lord, I want you to think about the following phrase. A cataclysmic event. That's it. Cataclysmic event. And I want you to indulge with me in your imagination for a little bit in order for us to understand that phrase a little bit better. A cataclysmic event would be something similar to a massive nuclear explosion that consumes every city in the world. Or what about a super, one of those super volcanoes and they explode and erupt and then they, they cover the whole world in darkness for years. Or maybe another one could be a massive earthquake that shatters the earth, moves houses, buildings from its places, destroys cities and towns, and so on. Or maybe another one. We can think about an asteroid. That's a very popular one, right? Uh, clashing against the planet. 
and then burning everything around uh, the the place for a thousand miles in the radio in a radius changing the atmosphere forever cataclysmic event those are those examples of that events after which life on earth will never be the same again it will be changing everything and if we manage to survive uh, like in the movies then uh, even ourselves will not be the same now i want you to think about the same effect about the same kind of change but with relationship to the death of king jesus christ because his death in the gospel of matthew is no other than this massive cataclysmic event whose effects are still being felt today and so this morning we will explore the king's death under two headings the first one the king's death ensues a new age and the second one the king's dead uh, the king's uh, dead excuse me makes him enter into a true rest so ensuing a new age first and second entering into two true rest so let's see the first uh, heading the king's death ensues a new age now i i want you to understand that the the center of the whole jewish life and world vision is actually surrounded around or centered in the temple of jerusalem think about this if american culture is centered and turns around entertainment and we fabricate our ideas about life around entertainment then jewish ideas for that matter were fabricated around the fact that the temple is this amazing place where god dwells and where god has made himself present in favor of the life and the well-being of the israelite nation and ethnicity so in that sense it will be a shattering cataclysmic event for jewish culture to see the temple disappearing it will be like removing the american constitution and the republic from this nation and yet something precisely of that magnitude is what we're seeing in the text look at verse 51 and behold the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split now the, the death of the lord jesus christ is this cataclysmic event congregation of the lord the proportions of this cataclysmic event are bigger than an asteroid clashing against the earth and, and of that, I'm not exaggerating, by the way, because the death of Jesus Christ brings about a change in history of major proportions, as it were, boys and girls, as it were, boys and girls, the beginning of a new era. As if the world were being formed again from the beginning. Jesus' death, in other words, is the beginning of a new era, is the beginning of something new. And the first thing that we see in this new era is the action of God upon the older order of things. You see, before the death of Jesus Christ, God's presence was veiled from us. It had been like that since the Garden of Eden. Uh, we couldn't go back into his presence. Fire and cherubim was preventing uh, that we come back into the Garden of Eden. It was preventing us from having a direct relationship with God and in the same way a very thick veil prevented human beings to enter into the holy presence of God in the temple in the tabernacle as well you see not even Moses 
could enter into the tabernacle when the glory of God was coming down over the tabernacle. All because this separation that we had created by our sin. God is holy, Israel was not. Therefore, they couldn't come into his presence. God is holy, and the nations were, were far away from him. Therefore, they couldn't have a relationship with him. But see what has happened here in the text with Jesus' death. Jesus' death atones for our sin. It removes from us, heals that division that sin had created between us and God. And as a result of that, there is no longer a separation between God and us. The cherubim are no longer keeping guard against us. But in Jesus, those cherubims are the ones who are welcoming us into the presence of God. That is what the cutting of this veil represents. It is God himself clearly speaking to us, affirming to the nation of Israel that we can enter into his presence directly because of the sacrifice of his son. Now, I want you to ask you, uh, have you understood that, congregation of the Lord? Have you realized of that, boys and girls, that the moment we are gathered together as a family of God to worship, we are called by God himself to come into his presence as we are, and we are no longer here in Montrose, Colorado. We actually are elevated into the presence of God himself. We have crossed the earthly realm and have entered heaven itself. How is that even possible? Well, Jesus has opened the path for us. The veil no longer separates us from God. The way that was blocked before has now been opened by Jesus Christ. And not only to Jews, by the way, but to the nations. That is you and I. This is a massive, game-changing, cataclysmic event that we are seeing in the scriptures. History has not been the same since then. And we can feel the effects of his death even today. And notice how the elements of the earth and the cosmos respond back, as it were, to Jesus' sacrifice. It's as, as if creation itself were reacting to what is going on in the text. Not only was there darkness for three hours, but also the moment that Jesus expired, the whole earth shook because it felt the power of what had happened. This event, congregation, is the partial, and I want you to hear me well, the partial fulfillment of what the Old Testament calls the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord in the Old Testament is this day of darkness, a day of judgment, a day in which the elements will be shaken, in which everything will change and nothing will be the same again. And that day, that day has been partially fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Think about it. What can be more cataclysmic than the death of the Son of God himself? And what can be more cataclysmic than our sins being atoned for the Messiah? Even death itself is affected. Look verses 52 and 53. Uh, the tombs are also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now pay attention to this, brothers and sisters. In Jesus Christ, death itself has been defeated. Death has died, so to speak, in Jesus' sacrifice. And Matthew wants you to know that. 
He wants you to understand, boys and girls, that because of Jesus, death no longer has power over us. The evidence for that is seen in the partial resurrection of some believers that have passed away before Jesus' death. Now, Matthew, he doesn't tell us how long they have been uh, dead for, nor what kind of resurrection it is that they are experiencing right now, or what happened to them after a long time. He does not care about it. He doesn't. But he cares for one thing. He cares that you can see the power of resurrection in Jesus Christ. He cares that you understand that nothing is the same anymore. He cares that we understand that the sting of death no longer affects our lives. He cares to show you that there is resurrection power in Jesus Christ. And that just like those saints of old, we too, you and I, will rise again in the final day. That is the hope of the gospel. Because in Jesus, brothers and sisters, God has opened this fountain of life everlasting. So much so that even natural death touches our bodies, and we have to aspire and, and die, of course, but we know it's only for a time. It's only for a time that our souls are secure in his presence, that we are going to enjoy his blessedness, and that our bodies, being still united to Christ, await the glorious resurrection. And of that idea, this text is the proof of. Notice how the gospel of Jesus Christ gives to our bodies the right place. We Christians, we are not body worshipers. We don't live for our bodies as if having the perfect body right here and right now were the most important thing or the best goal in life. Or at least we shouldn't think about that in that way. But we, we don't despise our bodies either. either. We don't reject our bodies as if what we are in our, body, our bodies is not what we are meant to be as if this disconnection existed between body and soul. No, boys and girls, the body that God has given you is good. It's good. God didn't make any mistakes when he gave it to you and made you who you are. Body and soul, they match. Your body is part of who you are, who God has made you to be. And he doesn't make mistakes. And it is that same body that one day will resurrect in glory, transformed, improved, bettered. So it's important. And now notice how Matthew closes this idea of the new age with verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. God being worshipped by heathens. That is a big theme, by the way, in the Gospel of Matthew, many, many times. He, he opens his Gospel, if you remember, in chapter 2, showing, showing us pagans worshipping the newborn king. And then he shows us how Jerusalem has totally ignored him. But now, Matthew shows us another one of those pictures. The confession of a pagan soldier who is at the feet of the cross, and he is confessing the name of Jesus Christ, just at the same time that Israel is entirely rejecting the king. What is it that he understands about Jesus, though? 
Well, one thing I know, we shouldn't expect him to recite the Apostles' Creed. And we shouldn't expect him to know what the Trinity is. He doesn't have that knowledge. It seems that his declaration, in fact, is very imperfect. But here's what matters to Matthew, that a pagan sees the whole truth of the cross, while Israel does not. That the shaking of the earth speaks about the innocence of Jesus the King, while Israel hardens their hearts against their own king. That is what matters. And even something more, that that curtain that was torn apart means that not only Jews, but the nations, every single one of those pagans, the Gentiles, the dogs of the world that the Jews used to call us, they have access to the Father in heaven because of Jesus Christ. The New Age also brings open doors for the Gentiles to worship God. Open doors for you and I. Because you and I, brothers and sisters, are spiritual heirs of this soldier at the feet of the cross. His confession has become our confession. His God has become our God. That Jesus is the Son of God. That he has died for our sins. Isn't that what we confess? And how amazing is this, isn't it? The one who vituperated, accused, spat on Jesus, the one who only saw the power and glory of Rome, has now become the one who confesses Jesus' name. And isn't that what conversion, conversion is? It's a transformation of our hearts. It's a new way of seeing life. It's abandoning our old perceptions and conceptions, our previous ideas, and then to confess that Jesus is God, that he has forgiven us of our sins, that he will never abandon his people. Truly, he is the Son of God. Now, what we have seen so far is all a sign of this cosmic change that has occurred in history. The temple, the old order, the old regime, the power of death, and the devil have been defeated on that cross. And that is why the king now enters into his rest. His task is completed. So let us see that rest in our second point. The king enters into true rest. Look at verses 55 and 56. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now, this is a very important mention that we have here in the Gospel of Matthew, and I don't want you to overlook it. Not only the Gospel has opened the path for the nations in order that everyone may find salvation in Jesus Christ, but Jesus has also, also opened the path for women to be seen in a different light. Traditionally, in Jewish culture, women were not regarded highly. But see how Matthew paints this woman here in the text. They had been looking from the distance while the disciples were running away. And we are not told what is crossing their minds at this point, but we are told their history, what has been happening to them. They are followers of Jesus just as any other of the disciples. Their role had not been the same though, but with their talents, with their gifts, they have become a blessing, a blessing for Jesus and for his disciples. 
And what kind of talents, though? Notice how even here, the grace of the gospel restores nature. The gospel does not impose a new order on things, uh, but restores the, the order given in creation. Just as Adam was given a helper, so Jesus has been helped and received help from this woman. While Jesus has been walking in this world, bringing the kingdom of God, preaching the good news of the gospel, it was women who were sustaining his work, women who were supporting him financially. And it was a woman, if you remember well, who came into his presence and prepared his body for burial. It is modernism, brothers and sisters, that has tried to collapse this distinction that we find in the scripture. It is modernism that would have loved to see this woman complaining that they have not been able to do more. Complaining that they have only supported Jesus financially, as if that were not already a privilege. But that is what modernism does to us. It shows discontentment. It tells us that our God-given roles in the church and family, in society and culture, in sciences and in the arts, are not enough. To quote Abraham, Abraham Kuyper, modernism will not rest until it makes a man a woman, and a woman a man, and no distinction in between. But that is not the gospel way, congregation. In the kingdom of God, there is a place and a role for everyone. Men and women, boys and girls, serve Jesus and they serve each other in each one of their, their callings. The apostleship and our God-given roles in the church are not more glorious than the roles that God has given to our sisters. Rather, the body of Christ is enriched, strengthened with the multiformity and diversity that he has placed inside the church. God brings glory to his name through every little thing that we do in order to serve him. There is no small things for the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no small things for the king. And in following the example of scriptures, we will be serving him in a sure foundation. In other words, not what I want and not what you want, but what Jesus says in his word. In any case, what we see from this woman is a witness of love. They won't leave Jesus, even if that means that they have to see him painfully die before their eyes from the distance. But they are not the only ones, are they? Because remember, the gospel does not put us one against each other. There is not, there is not fighting in the gospel. Rather, there is harmony. And that is precisely what we see. Look at verses 57 and 58. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Two groups, brothers and sisters, of unlikely followers are highlighted for us here. The first one we have already seen, the woman. The second one is a man of power, a wealthy man, a person who certainly belongs to the high society of Jerusalem of those days. And that because of that, he will be losing a lot if he's found associating himself with Jesus. So what is Joseph doing here? He's acting out of love. Love for his teacher. It is a love 
for Jesus that moved Joseph to risk every single thing that he has. His money, his reputation, everything in order to request the Jesus, the, the body of Jesus. Joseph, in other words, will not see Jesus' body being rotten and decomposed on the cross. And this is how we see God, uh, God's mercies over Jesus even now. Once he has atoned for our sins, brothers and sisters, the displeasure of God is no longer over him. And the sweet relief of an angel has come to Jesus' body to take care of him. Jesus is witnessed by his friends on the cross, and now he's buried by a friend after he has died. Again, the nature of the gospel changes things. In Joseph's case, it has changed his allegiances. He's not afraid to be associated with Jesus anymore. And he claims his body in order to show mercy to him. In fact, this is what we look, uh, what we see in the verses 59 and 60. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Every single act, every single thing that we are seeing here shines love for Jesus Christ. Is this, is this continual divesting of himself in order to love Jesus back? Notice the action. Uh, Joseph takes the body, then he spends lots of money and time in seeing that Jesus' body is properly cared for and prepared for the tomb. And then, maybe because he doesn't have more time, because the day of rest is about, uh, about to start, he has placed Jesus in his own new tomb. And I say lack of time because Joseph probably is planning something even better for Jesus. A burial place according to the statue of Jesus. But in the meantime, uh, uh, Joseph is willing to divest himself of his own things in order to serve Jesus. So consider the kind of love that the gospel of Jesus Christ demands from us, brothers and sisters. It's a self-emptying love. A love that seeks to get rid of everything in order to follow Jesus Christ, in order to serve him and love him back. It does not seek self-gain. It simply seeks to serve Jesus. Is that kind of love that the gospel has elicited upon your heart, congregation? Do you love, in other words, Jesus in this way? Have you divested yourself of what you think you're, you deserve, of what you think your rights are, in order to pour yourself over Jesus? Sometimes, sometimes, even at your personal loss. Give yourself entirely to Jesus. Do not think about what you think is right, what your rights demand, or what you think you deserve. Jesus gave it all for you. So you also should give it all for him. But do not get nervous. The demand is certainly a very high one. Or at least it may seem like it. But the truth is that this demand pales in comparison with what Jesus has already done for you. In any case, in any case the funny thing about this is that the Holy Spirit, in his own ways, will always help us to divest ourselves for Jesus Christ. At his own time, in his own plans, maybe this week, I don't know, 
you will see how in serving for Jesus' sake, in serving others for his name, in dying to yourself according to scriptures, you will actually be divesting yourself for Jesus. And as you can see in the text, a big rock seals the tomb, so no one can profane the body of Jesus. And even here, God has fulfilled his promises. He promised that his anointed one will suffer, will not suffer corruption, that he will not be abandoned in Sheol or in the tomb. Well, here you have it. God is protecting Jesus' body until the end. And as you know, he won't stay there for long. Finally, see how <clears throat> Matthew closes this portion, verse 61. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite to the tomb. What are they doing? They are preparing, readying their hearts for Jesus. The day of Jewish rest, the Sabbath, is starting, and they are preparing themselves not for the Sabbath, but for the next day, when they know they need to come and serve Jesus' body properly. What they ignore, though, is that the Jewish day of rest will come to an end on Sunday. And this rest is key for Jesus Christ. For three days in the womb of the earth, Jesus will fulfill the final requirement of the law. He will fulfill the Sabbath day for you and for me. Jesus on the tomb rests on the Sabbath day because his work is accomplished. And on that day of resurrection, he will ensue a new day of rest, one that does not depend on rituals, one that does not depend on anything else, and it extends from his resurrection until eternity. Even his rest, Jesus fulfills the law so we can obtain true rest, the true Sabbath, life everlasting with God. These women don't know it yet, but they are about to receive a great surprise from Jesus Christ. And us, congregation, we have received from Jesus Christ the ripe fruit of his resurrection, have we not? In him we receive life everlasting, the true rest of our souls, a better Sabbath, an eternal one that extends to eternity. And even more than that, we have received God himself. Because salvation is not justification. Salvation is God himself given to us in Jesus Christ. That's your inheritance. That's your portion in Jesus Christ. God himself given to you. So this morning, as we see Jesus' rest, may we see him in a new light, and may we divest ourselves in order to serve him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we cry out with the psalmist that says, what do I have in earth or in heaven but you? And outside of you, we want nothing. And that's precisely what you have given us in Jesus Christ. It is not just our justification, and we thank you for that, because that's a great gift that you have given us. Uh, but the biggest gift that you could have given us is your own presence, you yourself. And we thank you that because of Jesus Christ, you have united us to you. 
Uh, we pray, Lord, that as we walk in this earth and as we seek to serve you, we may be strengthened by your spirit. So we may divest of, of ourselves. May we die to ourselves and may we be alive to Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.